City Church in Over the Rhine is cultivating the kind of family Jesus introduced to the world in the city of Cincinnati. We're glad you're choosing to listen to a sermon from our weekly service. We would love to meet you. Visit us on Instagram or at citychurchotr.com. Enjoy. Good morning. Go Bengals. Who day? Uh, last week, I saw a whole family with Bill's sweatshirts on, and that guy's on our board. I've seen uh, at least one Chiefs sweatshirt here this morning, and here's what I love about the body of Christ. We're all welcome. We're all welcome here. And how's that? I mean, that's a pretty good leap in spiritual metaphor, so um, it's all downhill from that moment right there for us. Uh, Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want to start off, and and we've given this image before, but I want you to start off, and if it helps, close your eyes, um, but I want you to get the image in your mind of a table. We've used this uh, image a lot. I want you to get an image of your mind of a table. Maybe it's the last big family meeting, uh, family meal that you've had, or uh, a group of friends, your friends coming over, or you go over to a friend's house. I want you to get an image of what that dinner looks like uh, when you have a family meal. What's it feel like? What's it look like? And, uh, and now I want you to switch, and I want you to get an image of a boardroom or a big conference room, a long table, probably like a pitcher of water in the corner, maybe a projector. And, um, and I, want you to, I, I want you to think about the differences between those two images. And, and I've talked about those two images in, in some capacity, For the last two weeks, uh, because we're doing a series on our values, but we've started by saying um, it all, it it starts in the context of family and how we view something often dictates how we interact with it. And so the big thing that uh, I've kind of put out there for the first couple weeks is how do you view the church? Um, And and it might be more like one of those images that I, I had you envision at the beginning. Do you view the church more like a family, a family meal around a table, or do you view it a little bit more like a business, like around a conference room? Because, again, um, how you view something will determine how you interact with it. And we want to, especially in this series, but really forever, we want to continue to remind ourselves that the church is primarily a family. And the church is a business. Um, We have, we're a 501c3, we have uh, a board, we have a website, usually, Um, so we're like for sure a business, but primarily the church is a family, and that's why, and I've used this illustration the last two weeks, that's why when you go to a nice restaurant and the server brings you a check, uh, the check, if they also brought you a towel and said, hey, I'm going to wash you dry, you'd be offended by that. You'd say, man, are you trying to get free labor out of me? I'm offended. I came here so that you could, you go to a business so you can create solutions of convenience, and so that, that changes the way that you look at that interaction versus when you go to Thanksgiving and your, aunt's, uh, hand, your aunt hands you a towel and says, I'll wash you dry. You don't accuse her of trying to get free labor out of you, right? I mean, I hope not. Um, that's like, because you've, you've changed the way that you view that person. You've changed the way that you view that situation. When I get um, dinner with one of my friends, when I get dinner with John, who's running sound right now, um, and he asks me how my soul is, that's a moment that I'm like, oh man, I feel super cared for. If I go to a restaurant and my server asks for my drink order and asks me how my soul is, I'm like a little wary of witchcraft, right? Like, start praying in the spirit, 
getting a little bit defensive because in same question, maybe the same heart behind it, but how you view something will determine how you interact with it. And so Michelle just read this in Ephesians 4. Ultimately, when you get to verse 15, it says the goal of this, the goal of gathering, the goal of family, the goal of church, the goal of following Jesus is that we would once get to maturity or get to the fullness of Christ. So if maturity is the goal, then how you see the church will determine how you think you get to maturity. And if you see the church as a business, then the business is supposed to take away inconveniences from you, and it's supposed to do that work for you. The church, I've now outsourced my maturity to church, professional Christians, pastors, church staff, but if the church is a family, then it's different. You come into the family, and now your problem of maturity has become all of our problems. My problem of maturity actually is all of our problems. And so how you view something dictates how you interact with it. And here's why it's important. One, because God said it. Uh, two, Paul, I mean, lays it out. Jesus talks about it. But I said this last week, and, um, and I'm increasingly feeling like this could be true. Got a call from Karen this week who's leading our prayer team. She said this. Just a sense of like, man, I feel like God might do something in our city soon. Like maybe not 2023, but it feels like there could be a move. I mean, there's been all kinds of prophetic words that have been over the city long before I ever moved here, probably before you've uh, been born here, around Ohio and around Cincinnati. And so here's the big question that I asked last week, is if God brings revival to Cincinnati, and he says, and I want to use that church, I want to use City Church, will we be ready? Will we be ready for that? And here's how um, I'm defining ready is, uh, you know, as many people as there are here, about 200 people that are living missional, presence-centered, counter-formational lives together. Now, that's a terrible bumper sticker. I know, mouthful. But those are our values. Like, if, if we're going to define what's the target that we're going after, it's living a missional life, talked about that last week, presence-centered, counter-formational, counter to culture, and we're living that kind of life together. That's what we're going after. That's the, the target we're shooting for. And uh, a little bit of an aside, last week I, I said that exact same thing, I put that slide up there, I made that slide Saturday night, and then there was a blizzard that happened that like nobody knew was coming, and, and in my industry, with my profession, there's something uh, among pastors that I have dubbed uh, pastor math, and uh, it's amazing, my industry, my profession, it's amazing that you can look at a room of like, 83 people and be like, yeah, I think there's like 150 there. It's so weird when, I, when I'm around pastors, not all of them, but I've just resolved to not try to be that kind of person, pastor. And so last week, Saturday night, I looked at our average attendance and it was 210. And I was like, okay, I'm going to round down because I don't want to do pastor math. So I, I said about 200. I show up here Sunday morning. The slide's already made. There's 97 of you in the room because the blizzard has come and nobody can get here. And I, I didn't think about it in the moment, but that afternoon I was like, Man, new people probably think I'm crazy. <laughs> like, this guy's delirious. There's like 90 of us in a room, and he's putting a slide up saying 200. That's my insecurity. I just felt like if I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable, I'm going to be vulnerable too. The next time I make this slide, I'm going to say the goal is that all of us are living missional, presence-centered, counter-formational lives together. So let's uh, jump into Scripture. Exodus 33, if you have a Bible, paper, digital, Go to Exodus 33. While you get there, I'm going to um, summarize Exodus 32. And uh, here's what's cool. What I'm about to read, if you're doing the one-year Bible with us, uh, you're going to read this on Tuesday. Um, But it's okay to read ahead, so we're going to read it this morning. So Exodus 32, this is God using a guy named Moses, brings his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and and then he has kind of a leadership meeting with Moses on a mountain. 
And in the midst of this meeting, while Moses is on the mountain, giving Moses, you know, the law, the, the people of Israel say, man, we need an image that we can worship. To, and they're trying to worship the one true God, but they're like, we need something we can look at, lay eyes on so we can worship. And uh, the classic story that the, um, the Israelites, while Moses is on the mountain, make the golden calf and start worshiping the golden calf. And in the midst of Moses being on the mountain, God just says, look, these people are my translation. These people are crazy. They're stubborn. They, they, love, like, they just love getting it wrong. And so what do you say, Moses? You and I just start over. This is in Scripture. This is in Exodus 32. God says, Moses, I'll, I'll move my covenant. I'm, the covenant's going to be with you. Let's start over. You and your family, guaranteed success. We're going to get rid of these people. And Moses, I want you to think about the integrity of this. Moses says, no. No, God. I want you to still do it through them. And so that's the setting as we go to Exodus 33, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. He's honest. <laughs> we want to be honest because our God is very honest. And what's happening here is God is giving Moses two options. Number one, he said, okay, I did make a promise with Abraham, my servant Abraham. And so I'm going to give you that land. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send an angel ahead of you. And think about that for a second. What if an angel went ahead of you everywhere you, that you went? It would be awesome. And he says, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you. I'm going to guarantee victory. This is, your leader, this is the crux of your leadership moment. I'm going to promise you that you're going to succeed. You're going to get to the promised land. There's milk, honey, plants, animals. Everything you need is going to be there. The only catch is, is, is I'm not going to be there. I'm not going to go with you. The other option, option number two, is we could stay here. I'll be here with you, but I might destroy y'all. Think about that. I mean, those are the two options that Moses gets. Guaranteed success. Option number two, we'll stay here, but it's, it's going to get a little bit ugly. This is millennials. This is the, the version of God saying, I can't even, okay? The author of patience, love, mercy gets to an I can't even moment with his people. And he says, I'm gonna, I'll send my best angel. Go ahead, Victor. I, I, don't th I don't know if I can be here with you because I might destroy you. And so Moses is given two options, and we're actually going to pause there. We're going to come back to Moses in a second. But I want, I want us to remember, Moses has two options, guaranteed success, but no God, or the presence of God, but things could get ugly. Um, and I want to go uh, back to, we've been talking through a Venn diagram for the last three weeks. If you're new, how exciting we talk through Venn diagrams when you're here. Um, so put up that first Venn diagram. There it is. Okay, so this is, and this comes out of uh, Church of the City, which is in New York, pastor, the pastor of that church is John Tyson. They have those three values, which are our three values. So we're, we, we learn a lot from them. I learn a lot from him. He's a friend. And by friend, I mean I listen to everything that he says, and he sees me once a year at a pastor's conference. So <laughs> we're friends. Six months ago, he told someone um, that lives in Ohio, he said, hey, you got to go check out City Church in downtown Cincinnati. Your servant can die in peace. <laughs> Probably need to check my idolatry. Anyway, this is John Tyson. 
And, um, and here's what I want us to remember. The, those are their three values. We have a fourth value. The black part of that slide is family. It's all in the context of family. And if we're going to try to live this out without friends that feel like family, without people we can run with, at best, it's going to be really difficult. At worst, but probably more likely, it's going to be impossible to live out the full Christian life if we're trying to do it without people around us. So, number one, um, what I want to talk about first is what happens when, and I did this last week, I said, what happens when we pursue mission above everything else? What happens when we pursue presence above everything else? So next slide. We get hyper-spirituality. When we pursue presence, an encounter with God, void of being formed into the image of Jesus, or void of living a missional life, we get uh, what he calls, and I agree, hyper-spirituality. Now, we are a... um, Depends how you define the word, but we are a, a charismatic church. That's a loaded word. We're a prophetic church. We believe, here's what we believe, that God's spirit is still on the move. He's still speaking and healing and doing wonders all over the earth. And, so we, and we want to be a prophetic church. We want to be that. And we want to be a church that has a healthy prophetic culture. We want to have accountability in how we interact with the spirit. And so a prophetic, uh, a prophetic culture left unchecked can turn a little bit into hyper-spirituality. Some of the things that this looks like, maybe you've been in a culture like this. Everything is the Lord said. The Lord said this, the Lord said that. And, and the problem when we just put that blanket statement out there is that in church, you can't argue with what the Lord said. It's the trump card that shuts everything else down. And so we want to use that phrase, or actually the phrase we want to use is, I feel like the Lord is saying, We want to use that phrase cautiously, but we want to use it if we feel like God's saying something because we believe he still speaks. Uh, Another symptom of this culture is, um, maybe you've been around this, like there's a demon behind every corner. Everything's spiritual warfare. Stub my toe, the enemy's after me, car ran out of gas, the Satan's coming after my family, and it's like, no, you forgot to put gas in the car. Like, (laughs) this can be explained. And... um, and I'll, there was a moment, and a lot of you have heard my testimony, I really started following Jesus in the midst of a miracle. I saw my friend get healed of leukemia, and I go after the presence of God for a few years really hard. And it's not that I forgot about the other two, but I was living a, a somewhat um, hyper-spiritual life. And in the midst of that, I got married. And, and here's just a little bit of what this can look like. Uh, went on our honeymoon. It was awesome. Catherine and I had really never, I, I don't think, hardly ever slept in the same room together. And so now we're living in an apartment, and um, like, I don't know if it's three or four or six nights into us being home, Catherine, in the midst of us being asleep, sits up and starts yelling at the corner of our room, just screaming. So I sit up, and I'm ready to, I'm ready to fight, because someone's in our room, <laughs> except they're not. And so I realize, oh, there's no physical presence here. She, there's something demonic going on. So I start praying in the spirit, and I'm getting after it. And what's interesting is she goes right back down, and she's asleep instantly. And I'm, like, ready to fight something or run or whatever. I'm like, what, what is happening? Two nights later, it, the exact same thing happens. She starts screaming at something, starts mumbling stuff that I don't understand. And I determine, I mean, the only reasonable thing that could be determined, my wife has a demon. Now, you laugh, but I want you to imagine 20 days before that, you make a covenant that is supposed to last, last forever, and now I find out she's a demoniac. <laughs> it was a tough moment for me. Turns out, spoiler alert, she doesn't have a demon. She, uh, and she is the most, if you've met her, she's the most calm, 
precious, amazing woman, but man, that woman has a sleep talk issue. Um, <laughs> and she gets after it. Turns out that's just, that's in the natural. Hyperspirituality says, oh, there's a demon in the room, there's a demon everywhere. Um, I didn't tell her I was going to tell that story, so this is great. <laughs> what I do now, actually, when she does this, is I just start talking back to her, and sometimes I record our conversations, so... I'm not hyper-spiritual anymore, but I'm also not that mature. Um, <laughs> last week, if we pursue only mission, I said that that is, or he says that that's a secular missionary that's chasing a utopia. When we live on mission, void of the presence and formation, we're chasing a utopia. When we are hyper-spiritual, we are chasing an experience, but that's not us. We're right in the middle of that graph. We are Jesus followers that bring the kingdom. So if you only have mission, you're chasing a utopia that will never come. If you're only living for the presence and the experience of God, you're chasing an experience that eventually will go away. But a Jesus follower lives right in the middle of where those overlap. And Jesus followers bring the kingdom of God. Now, for all of the reasons above that I've just said, there are re- that we can see why communities of faith, churches at times just say, hey, we're going to get rid of this, this spirit stuff. It's messy. We're, the presence of God seems to be a little bit tough. I mean, there's all kinds of weird things that have happened with it. That will not be us. We cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. And here's why. Because the presence of God is beautiful. The presence of the Spirit of God, when he comes into a room, he changes everything. In a moment, he can heal a body. In a moment, he can heal, he can cover up wounds from trauma. In a moment, he can answer every skeptic's question way better than the best apologist. So, um, when he comes into a place, he does, I mean, he does, he changes everything. Everything changes when God comes into a place, and we don't want to be the kind of church that says, but it'd be a lot lot cleaner, it'd be a lot nicer if that was not the case. Because the presence of God is absolutely worth it. Now, in this, in the midst of that Venn diagram, if we go after mission and formation, but not presence, uh, it says that we are living in social activism. Social activism. What does it look like if we're living a life void of his presence? Because a disciplined mission, formative life to Jesus, living on mission, will not bring the kingdom of God. Ultimately, that's not going to work. And last week, I said that uh, of the three, when I'm living my busiest life or maybe a life that has has, uh, moved away from intimacy with Jesus, the easiest one for me uh, that falls away is mission. Uh, I can, I'm still praying present-centered prayers, I'm going after formation to Jesus, but I stop living on mission. What is it for you? And I want you to ask that question every week. What one, when when you get busy, when when intimacy with Jesus starts to fall away, which one of these three most naturally falls away for you? Is it presence? Is it possible that it's presence? Because I would say, actually, in the church, this is the easiest one to not have and still look like a good Christian in church. You can still um, cut out sin of your life. You can still serve. You can still read the Bible. You can still use fancy church words like Eucharist and atonement. Like all of that can happen without the presence of God. You can even talk to God without the presence. Can't listen, but you can talk. You can believe in miracles. You can say they exist theologically. Probably don't ask for them because that would be embarrassing if God didn't show up. You can actually live 
like a Christian. I don't think you can live as a Christian, but you can live like a Christian, void of the presence of God. When you get busy, when you start to stray in your faith, which one of these three is easiest for you to lose? Is it the presence? The problem is that Jesus had a problem with people that lived missional, formative lives that were void of the presence. Um, He called them whitewashed tombs. In Matthew 23, he said to them, he said, on the outside, you appear to be righteous. On the outside, you look clean. You're clean on the outside, cream on the inside. Nope. That was for like 630-year-olds out there. (laughs) Clean on the inside, cream on the outside. And so that, shout out to Prom 2010. Jesus is saying that's what you're like. There's something on the outside that actually looks nice, but on the inside, there's lifeless, dead religion. And so when we choose to live a life void of the presence, we're choosing something that Jesus, in in short, told the Pharisees they were like whitewashed tombs. Guys, I want to be alive on the inside and the outside. Anybody else? Okay, I have, um, I have lots of titles. Everyone has lots of titles, right? Uh, I have lots of titles that I'm fond of. I am the husband to Catherine. I'm the son to Tony and Stacy. Uh, to a lot of you, I'm a peak-level athlete. I'm the father to Esther. I'm a friend. Um, but to my oldest niece, Reagan, I'm Uncle Chris, but really the primary title that I carry in her life is Plop Master. Maybe you've heard of me. I'm Plop Master, and here's what plopping is. I'm sure it's really creative. No one's ever done it. Uh, I'll put Reagan, she's four and a half, on a couch or on a bed, and I'll put my hands underneath her. I'll lift her up, and then I'll plop her back down. Again, I know no one's ever done this before. And we've named it Plopping. She calls me the Plop Master. And um, so here's, here's what I've noticed. Um, so Reagan, uh, her mom and dad, it's Catherine's sister and my brother-in-law, Chad. I love the way they parent. I've noticed what they do with Reagan um, and Aaron, their, their other daughter, is they give them choices. And so instead of saying, Reagan, go brush your teeth right now, they'll say, hey, Reagan, do you want to brush your teeth in one minute or two minutes? And it's empo- I've watched it. It's like, oh, that's so empowering. And um, you're still going to go brush your teeth. And so I've started to adopt that um, as I've watched them parent. I've said, okay, I want to adopt that in the way that I do plopping with Reagan, and so, um, and there comes a moment, she just keeps gaining weight, as any four and a half year old should, and I'm not getting stronger at the same, I'm not even getting stronger, and so I'm like, you know, six plops in, I'm like sweating, and nobody wants a sweaty plop master, it's gross, and so there comes a moment that I'm like, I can't do this anymore, and so instead of saying, okay, this is the last one, I'll say, Reagan, what do you want to do for your last plop, and we've invented like 12 of them, I was like, do you want to do pancake plop, which is where I scoop under and I flip her over like a pancake. You want to do mega plop, which is where I could lift her over my head. That one's tough. Um, or, and, uh, and I, I don't think this is heretical. This is her favorite one. Or do you want to do baptism plop? Where <laughs> I'm actually pastor plop master to her. And, uh, and it's where I hold her in a baptism form. And I, I'll start talking to her normally. And then in the middle of my sentence, I'll just slam her on the couch and bring her back up. I've baptized Reagan two or 300 times. So... Also, if you're new here, my name's Chris. I'm the primary shaper of theology at City Church, so it's awesome. So anyway, I, uh, here's what I love. Instead of saying, this is your last plop, I'll say, Reagan, what do you want to do for your last plop? I'll give her a few options. And here's what she does. She thinks about it for like a decent amount of time. And I love it because I watch the gears start to turn. And she looks confused, dazed, um, I mean, all kinds of, I mean, she's like really wrestling through 
which one do I want to do? And I can see, like, man, if I do that one, it's this. But usually when he does baptism, he does it, like, three or four times. So it's kind of a four for one. I mean, I'm just imagining what's going on. And here's why she does that. It's because um, this, this is what humans do. And I know you're wondering, what's the connection between Reagan and Moses? And I figured the longer I talked, I'd find one. But <laughs> no, here it is. Reagan, like so many of us, like indicative of the human race, thinks through decisions where we have more than one option. This is what we do. We are a thoughtful bunch in general. We think through our decisions. And when I give her a couple of different options, I want, I mean, it's not a big life-changing decision, but I watch her wrestle with the decision because that's what humans do. We wrestle with decisions that seem to be somewhat comparable. Moses didn't do that. Moses had two options, right? Angel, success, milk, honey, promised land, or stay here, desert, wilderness, I'll be here. And in verse 15, and you can read in the middle, there seems to be very little hesitation. We don't see any wavering back and forth. We see no follow-up questions from Moses. Verse 15, Moses gives his decision. He says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. That's not the decision I would have expected, just looking on paper. And yet he makes a very definitive statement. He doesn't waver back and forth. When Reagan has two options, I watch her go back and forth. That's what humankind does. This is not an indictment on Reagan's indecisiveness. This is more about something that Moses must have known that maybe we don't quite get just from like the, the face value of the page. What did Moses know that would lead him to make a quick, seemingly wrong decision? And I think it's this. He knew that the promised land without the presence was going to be worse than the desert with the presence. He knew that I could go there, all the success, and, and we, we hear this and we're like, yeah, I'd choose the same thing. I'm not positive. I'm not positive I would. I mean, and we, this is outdated. You have milk in your fridge, you have honey in the pantry. There's not a group of people trying to kill you from all sides. Like, that's where they were. It was really, really, they had a big incentive to get out of that place. So let's put it into today's language. I want you to imagine that God comes to you and he offers you um, money, like all the money that you'll need. Like you'll never need uh, anything again. You can buy whatever you want. Money won't be an issue. Um, and in, in your job or in your work or in your parenting, everything you do is going to have deep, deep purpose. There's going to be purpose no matter what you do. If your marriage is not great, your marriage is going to be great. If you're not married and you want to be married, you're going to get married, you're going to have a great spouse. If you want kids, your kids are going to be so well-behaved. Everyone's going to talk about them. It's going to be awesome. Uh, you're going to have really good friends. All of your friends are going to love you, and they're going to really surround you, and they're going to uh, spur you on. You're going to have great friends. And at the end of it all, you're going to get to go to heaven. The only catch is that, that I'm not going to be with you in the midst of this, but everything's going to go well for you. The other option is God says, you can keep living the way that you are, um, but I'll be, I'll be here with you. Nothing's going to change in the exterior of your life, but I'll be with you. What do you choose? Now, for a lot of us, real moment, a lot of us, we choose the first one because that sounds like our life anyway, minus the money and the good marriage and the friends and the, the kids. There's no presence, very little presence of God in my life. That's the modern day Exodus 33. God says, I'm going to give you everything you could ever want. This is going to be the apex of your leadership moment. People are going to love you. You're going to get milk, honey, every, all of it. I'm just, I'm going to send an angel, which is awesome. I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. And he says, no, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from here. I'm not, I'm not leaving unless you're leaving with us. 
There's something that Moses knew that seems to be a little bit deeper than what we just read on the page. David gets it, Psalm 27, 4. King David, right, has everything. He says, the one thing I ask from the Lord, the only thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the day of my life, all the days of my life. The house of the Lord is where the presence of God was. He was in a fixed moment, a fixed uh, place. And David says, man, forget the palace Forget everything else I have. If I could just be here, if I could just get this, if I could just be around this kind of thing, that's all I need. If I could live anywhere in the world, I'd live in the house of the Lord because that's where the presence of God is. David gets it. David understands something. Moses understands something about what happens when we get around the presence of God. So how do we live lives that, that cultivate the presence of God? And, uh, and I love, uh, it's, it's, it's a really simple word, it's just hunger. Are we hungry for his presence? I love what John Tyson says about this. He says that God will bypass thousands of lukewarm to fill a hungry person. And that's really good news if you're hungry. And that's a little bit scary if you're a little lukewarm. That's scary for me in my moments of saying, man, you could come or you could not come. I don't care. God will bypass thousands of lukewarm to fill the one hungry person. God often often, but God often comes where he's wanted. I was helping lead a house group on Monday night, and one of the girls said, man, God's a gentleman. He, he goes where he's invited. I'm like, that's so true. God goes where he's wanted. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force his way in unless he has the door opened up for him. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus wants to come in, but he is knocking. The presence is something that's cultivated by hunger. One of the things I love to pray is I love to pray a prayer that I know God's going to answer. It's like playing a game you know you're going to win. When we pray scripture, specifically scripture that is a general and promise, not specific, um, so general promises that are for all people at all times, when we pray like Matthew 5, 6, this is Jesus. He said this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So God wants to fill us. So when we pray, God, I want more of you, we can actually take that promise to the bank and say, oh, he actually wants to do that for us. I know he's going to answer that prayer. He wants to fill your home. He wants to fill your school. He wants to fill your place of work. Guys, he actually, he wants to fill this church. God goes where he's wanted. We want to be a people that cultivate a hunger for him. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate hunger? And what's interesting is it's opposite of uh, how you cultivate natural hunger. The way you cultivate a natural hunger is you stop eating, right? Some of us are fasting this year. You know that all too well. It's the, it's the great Thanksgiving strategy, Thanksgiving meals at 4 p.m. I'm not eating till 4 p.m. so that I'm extra hungry. That's how you cultivate hunger in the natural. It is the opposite in the spiritual. If you want to cultivate a hunger for prayer, you actually just start praying. If you want to cultivate a hunger for the word, you start reading if you want to cultivate a hunger for the presence of God, the, I'd say the most um, impactful thing you can do is choose friends and significant others that also hunger for the presence of God. Nothing is going to dictate who or what's going on around you more than the people that you spend your time with. So what marks people that uh, cultivate the presence? It is a deep, deep hunger. And the, the, the less that we, or the more that we isolate from people, the harder it is to get into community. You would think that the more I isolate, the more I'm going to hunger for it. Actually, the harder it is to hunger now for authentic, vulnerable relationships. 
So if we're supposed to just act like people that are hungry until the hunger actually becomes real, how does a hungry person act? What, is, uh, what does someone do who loves the presence of God? I would say, first of all, someone who loves the presence of God generally, generally wakes up early to spend time with him. And I know quiet times are so religious and outdated, except it seems like Jesus had quiet times, so I don't know what to do with that. Like, he woke up early and he spent time with his father. Someone that cultivates hunger probably is waking up early to spend time with him. Someone that um, cultivates hunger, that lives a hungry life, probably spends some of their time driving, uh, praying also, not just listening to the radio or today's hits or even a podcast. Someone that cultivates hunger chooses, again, their friends and um, their significant others that also want to cultivate and bring in the presence of God. People that live hungry... um, live a little bit different. When you live hungry, there's going to be things that you do that don't make any sense, but they will make sense to the people around you if you're also living amongst people that are hungry for the presence of God. If we want to have the presence of God, we have to live a hungry life. And God promises when we're hungry for his righteousness, he fills us up. So how do we live in a way that does that? People of the presence tend to be people that get around other people that love the presence of God. Um, revival is uh, a big word thrown around, but revival is really simply this. Revival is God pouring out his focused presence in a place. He pours, pours out his presence in a specific place in a really focused way at a focused time. And if you study revival history, it's so good, um, and we can learn so much from studying revivals. Usually when you study a revival, you can see a few themes that weave throughout them. Every revival I've ever seen has started with some kind of move of repentance and prayer. What's interesting is there's certain themes that don't exist in revival history. There is no geographical theme to revivals. There's no racial theme to revivals. There's not an economic theme. uh, There's been rich people and poor people that have brought revival. What's interesting is there's also no denominational thread to revivals. There's not a certain denomination that has kind of cornered the market on revivals, and the reason that is, is that because throughout history, independent of any denomination, God has gone to a group of people that have wanted him there. So if you read about revivals, revivals have come to reform people, charismatic people, hippies, Anglicans, Catholics. Guys, why not here? Why could we not, why could we not, if there's a reason, if there's a good reason, then we should know and we should stop talking about it. But there's no reason that I see that God could not pour out his focused presence in Cincinnati in our lifetime. And so we want to be ready. We want to be right in the middle of that graph. We want to be people that if he does it, this church is ready. We're not pastor-centered, leader-centered. We are, all of us, engaging in the mission of God to bring his presence all over this city. Why not here? Why not now? Again, send me an email if you have a reason. Not right now, though. The website's down, and I can't get emails. (laughs) Do it tomorrow in faith, in Jesus' name. Moses gets it. David gets it. David says this, Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you. My whole being longs for you. Guys, this is like presence goals, right? And this is King David, probably sitting in his throne, like between meals as people bring him whatever he wants. He's between the grapes and the cakes and whatever. And, and in between meals, he's probably writing Psalm 63 saying, God, I thirst for you. It's better than the wine I just had. Right? This is, this is 
what the situation is? Actually, read the, read the preamble of Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. That's when he wrote that. He's running from his son who's trying to kill him. And he likely doesn't have the necessities of normal life. He probably doesn't have water. And he's saying, God, I thirst for you. God, I hunger for you. My whole being wants for you. Homeboy's in the desert. Doesn't have a house. And he starts writing Psalm 63. God, I earnestly seek you. What does David get that we sometimes don't? What does Moses understand that we sometimes don't? I think it's that they've tasted the presence and nothing else could ever be the same. And we think, I'll just say I think, you can identify with me if you want. Sometimes I think that um, once things calm down, that's when I'm really going to pursue the Lord. Like, like once I get a life like King David, once, once there's margin in my schedule, margin in my finances, that's when I'm really going to go after the presence. Maybe once I get that, get that raise, that'll be when, when we can go after him. Once I get my health, because it's hard, you know, if, if you're sick, all you think about is getting better. Once I get my health, that's when I'm going to really go after the presence of God. Maybe if you're single and you're longing to be married, it's when you get married, right? That's when I have a partner that I can do this with, that, that'll be the moment that I go after the presence of God. And David's in a desert saying, Lord, all I want is you. All I want is you. I just want to be hungry. I'm hungry for your presence. City Church, we want to be people that are hungry for his presence. There is probably the most successful evangelist of all time, um, at least in terms of numbers, is not Billy Graham. Uh, but it's a guy named Reinhard Bonnke. And uh, he did revivals all throughout Africa. We probably haven't heard a lot about him. But this guy, I mean, at, at any moment, like any revival, certain revivals, he brought a million people to Christ. Like documented, filled out the thing, started following Jesus. Eighty million people throughout Reinhard Bonnke's lifetime, he led to Christ. And this is what he says. I mean, this guy experienced way more ministry success than anybody else I know. He just experienced more success than most people, I think, could, could classify. And he said this, the crowds are not my reward. The presence of Jesus is my reward. Confucius, not a Christian, but we can learn from him. He said, a healthy man wants a thousand things. A sick man wants only one. Because I want to be so obsessed over the presence of God that it's like a sick man who wants to get healthy. I want to be singularly focused I'm bringing Jesus into my life because his presence is worth our pursuit. What did David understand? What did Moses understand that we don't? Um, and I think it's this, that God comes where he's wanted. And so um, at times, if I'm honest, there's been moments that I have not wanted God. Sometimes I've just wanted to want God. There's been moments in my life that I have wanted to want to want God. And so no shame, no condemnation. Let's take an honest inventory right now. How many wants are you away from the presence of God? How many wants away are you? And then this morning, as we just start to worship right now, I'm gonna ask that we move a position and that we get one of those out of the way. That we would move one of the wants out of the way and say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm moving closer to actually desiring your presence. Because I know if it comes, if you come, it changes everything. God goes where he's wanted. And so um, this morning, we're just going to have a little bit of a reflective moment in worship. But I, um, I want you to remind the Lord, Lord, you're wanted here. Let's remind the Lord corporately, because this is one of the beauties of Sunday morning. Lord, you are wanted here. 
And God, you are wanted here. And so let's respond to him and say, God, I thirst for you. More than physical water, I thirst for you. I'm hungry for your presence because I know it changes everything. So we're going to stay seated and we're going to remind the Lord that he is welcomed in this place. Thank you for listening to the sermon from our Sunday service. If we can serve you in any way, please visit our website at citychurchotr.com. If you want to be a part of what God is doing in Cincinnati, you can support us financially. Giving can also be done on our website at citychurchotr.com give.